Welcome to the 2018 Prima Podcast Series. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the Director of Education and Training at Prima. On this Prima Podcast, Ben Roberts will discuss drug formularies, a growing trend in workers' compensation. Ben is the Vice President of Utilization Review at Genix Services. He received his Juris Doctorate from the University of South Carolina Law School and a Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Georgia. We will also be joined by Taekwon Gilbert, a member of Prima's education and training team. Taekwon will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Ben. Can you explain what a drug formulary is in workers' compensation? Also, what is its intent? Yeah, of course. A drug formulary in its most basic form is really just a list of medications that, that may or may not be prescribed to an injured worker or patient. I'd make the distinction that in, in workers' compensation, a drug formulary is a little bit different than what might be kind of commonly referred to as a formulary. Most of us have experience with our, our kind of group health insurance where we see a formulary uh, that allows for certain medications to be prescribed at certain reimbursement rates, tier one, tier two, tier three, things like that. And, and in workers' compensation, a formulary is definitely not talking about payment levels or reimbursement levels. It's talking about and dealing with whether or not a medication is on the formulary or not and whether or not that medication should be permitted to be prescribed. And so, Typically, the goal of a, a formulary is, in workers' compensation is not really around cost reduction, but it's around patient safety and ensuring that the appropriate medications are being prescribed and dispensed to injured workers who are, have active workers' compensation claims. Can you give us an overview of the states that have put drug formularies in place for workers' compensation so far? And what results, good or bad, have these states seen? There's been a number of states that have implemented drug formularies. To date, nine different states have implemented drug formularies. Arizona, Arkansas, California, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, and Washington. They've all implemented a formulary. Some of those have just been implemented in the last few months as early as as July of this year. And so when we talk about what the results have been, we kind of have to look at the formularies that have been around for a period of time. And, and typically, we can think of the a small group of formularies that are legacy-type formularies. So North Dakota, Ohio, and Washington State have all had formularies since the early 2000s. And, and Texas is kind of the first of the more modern era, I'll say, that to, to have a formulary. So Texas might be the best state to look at from a, a result perspective to determine whether or not the, uh, the formulary was good or bad, whether the results uh, resulted in intended uh, goal. And in Texas, the goal was to reduce the overutilization of, of medications, specifically opioids in workers' compensation claims. And, and Texas, they enacted a formulary in, in some legislation in, in 2005 and did a large amount of legwork to establish that formulary and to prepare for that formulary. And in 2011, they implemented kind of the first true phase of the formulary, which was for new dates of injury and new medications that were being prescribed. 
and the formulary went into effect officially in 2013. The good result of that is in Texas, they saw an 83% reduction within the first year of certain drug categories and, and the cost associated with those drug categories. Texas, their, the way their formulary is listed, it describes a drug as an N drug or a Y drug, a, a drug that is not recommended for first-line therapy or, yes, a drug is recommended for first-line therapy. And so Texas saw an 83% reduction in the cost of those N drugs in the first year and has continued to see significant reductions in drug costs over the last several years since 2013 as, as they've reported on those. Some of the other jurisdictions um, to evaluate whether or not they've been good or bad, it's, it's still a little too early to tell. Oklahoma and Tennessee, for instance, have had formularies for the last several years. Tennessee was implemented in 2016 and, and Oklahoma was implemented in 2014. But the data coming out of those jurisdictions does not show a significant favorable result. That doesn't mean there's not good results, but the, the data is not really conclusive like it was in Texas and, and even in some of the earlier formularies like Ohio and Washington that have pre presented very good, uh, very good results. Are there other states on the horizon that may be implementing a drug formulary soon? Are there certain program elements or guidelines state legislatures should consider when implementing a drug formulary? Yeah, there's there's a variety of states that are discussing discussing drug formulators at this point. In fact, I would say that the majority of jurisdictions are considering a formulary in some way or another. When when Texas released its initial results back in 2014, legislators and regulators definitely took notice because the impact was so drastic and dramatic. And so since Texas, we've had several states implement formularies. We also have states like Indiana and Montana and New York that have, have passed either legislation or adopted regulations to implement a formulary, and those are kind of pending formularies. We've got several other jurisdictions like Georgia, and Louisiana, Nebraska, North Carolina, South Carolina. Those jurisdictions have all, their regulators and legislators have all expressed intent to establish formularies, but they're in the early phase. Uh, regulators can really, in many jurisdictions, they can kind of initiate a formulary themselves, but in other jurisdictions, it has to be done at the legislative level through the introduction of new legislation. And so for some states, it's easier than others to, to implement a, a, a drug formulary. With respect to the question about are there certain elements or guidelines that legislatures sh should consider, there's a pretty significant number of things that should be considered when thinking about implementing a drug formulary. Texas was a great example of patience and deliberate rollout of their formulary. As I mentioned, that process started in 2005 when HB5 was signed, and from that point, Texas took many steps in order to effectively roll out a formulary. Really, eight years of preparation took place. And so if jurisdictions want to replicate the Texas-like results and the Texas-like reduction in medications and medication spend, well, they really have to more closely follow Texas's steps that they took. And, and really, those there's eight different criteria, I think, 
when we talk about a drug formulary that regulators and legislators should, should consider. The first is mandatory participation. You shouldn't have a formulary that has different requirements for different people, depending on dates of injury, depending on claim life cycle. You should really have a situation where you have a formulary that applies to all injured workers and that there's not a variety of carve-outs and, and exceptions. Another principle that should be followed is that you need to have very clear criteria, meaning you need to have very, a very clear list or set of documents that outline what drugs will be subject to the formulary. That list must be readily available and published and, and accessible. Another area is that that list that formulary list, it, it shouldn't just be accessible, but it needs to be current. It needs to be regulated, regularly updated. The FDA is constantly approving new medications, and those need to be reflected in those formulary lists. And so you need to have some mechanism to update those, those lists and to ensure that they are current and capture all of the available drugs in the marketplace. You should also have a graduated implementation process. And what I mean by that is that you should have a period of time where you have the formulary effective for new injuries and then a separate deadline or a separate period of time where the formulary goes into effect for existing injuries. Individuals who are on medications that are often on the formulary or off the formulary, depending on how it's described, often are on medications like opioids that can it can take time to wean and discontinue. And to do that properly in a clinically responsible manner, there needs to be time. And so creating a, a single start date with no opportunity for kind of transitioning care and thinking about the, that class of injured workers and claims that already are on these medications, you need to be able to think about that and make sure that you consider that in the formulary. You also need to know by what criteria you evaluate the medical necessity of, of the, the medications, meaning which sort of either guideline or, or practice parameter you're going to follow in determining whether or not a medication should be prescribed. Just because a drug is listed on a formulary doesn't mean that it's never appropriate. It just means that a, a look should be taken, a clinical review should be done before it's prescribed and dispensed. And so you need to have clear criteria, and that criteria should be evidence-based using a, a standard like the official disability guidelines or the ACOM guidelines or, or state-specific guideline. There should be care in establishing what that evidence-based standard is. The sixth kind of principle or, or kind of item to really consider is, is the establishing of a, of, of a formal pre-authorization process. Some states have decided to implement or have talked about implementing a formulary before they have implemented a, a, a pre-authorization process or, or kind of the regulatory framework necessary to review medical requests. A formulary is going to trigger a number of requests. And so if you're implementing a formulary and you're implementing a pre-authorization process at the same time or in the absence of a pre-authorization process, there's going to be confusion. There's not going to be a significant amount of adherence to the formulary. There's 
it's just not going to be nearly as effective as, as it could be. In Texas, Texas initiated a preauthorization process after in 2008 and, and initiated treatment guidelines and created this kind of remediation period. They, they followed all these steps to set themselves up for a successful formulary. The last two items I want to mention that regulators and legislators should consider, the first is the appeals process. You need to have some sort of mechanism to appeal requests and to elevate those beyond the, the payer or carrier. And so having some sort of, whether it be state-run, whether it be a, a third, just a general third-party process, there needs to be some sort of appeal process. Texas has an IRO process. California has the IMR process. Things like this need to be in place in order to effectively elevate disputes. The last category is, uh, is, is a little bit of a catch-all, but, but is important. It is aligning the success metrics with the regulatory intent. And what I mean by that is oftentimes jurisdictions have the intention to reduce medications in, in the state. Uh, and so they implement a formulary, but then they don't implement any sort of way to track progress, any sort of reporting or data submission requirements, those things are not always included in the formulary, and they should be. That's one of the reasons why Texas was able to not only implement a successful formulary, but also to report on that success is because they required the participants in the, the workers' compensation insurance market to give data back to the Division of Workers' Compensation and so that the division could report on the success that they that they had. If states look at these principles as they're considering adopting them, then I think that they will be heads and tails above those that don't and, and much closer to replicating results in states like Texas that really took a deliberate, patient, and thorough approach to implementation of a formulary. Thanks for tuning in to this Prima podcast. I would like to take a moment and invite you to Prima's 2019 Annual Conference, June 9th through 12th in Orlando, Florida. Here are some words from Prima's Meetings Director, Monique Gilliam, regarding Prima's 2019 Annual Conference. If you haven't heard, Prima's exhibit booth sales are now open. We are over 50% to capacity and space is filling up fast, so reserve your spot today by visiting www.primacentral.org and clicking the Annual Conference tab. We'll see you in Orlando. To learn more about Prima's 2019 Annual Conference, visit primacentral.org. Do drug formularies have the potential to positively impact the opioid epidemic? Absolutely. We've seen results, as, uh, and I continue to use Texas as an example, but, but an 83% reduction in, in, in drugs, in, in those dangerous drugs in, in Texas is a pretty significant statistic. Now, that category of medications includes a lot of things besides opioids. So opioids definitely were a component of that. As states consider the opioid epidemic and how it affects the workers' compensation market, a formulary is a fantastic tool to address the overutilization of opioids, which is the cause of the opioid epidemic in this country. However, it's not enough to simply look at a formulary and to look at the formulary as the single solution to the opioid epidemic in workers' compensation and, and 
generally. Though a formulary isn't a silver bullet, it's a tool. And it's one of many tools that a regulator and a legislator should consider when trying to address the opioid epidemic. Other tools like opioid prescribing limitations, day supply and quantity limits, prescriber mandated prescriber education, mandated evidence-based guidelines, uh, requirements for urine drug testing and monitoring, prescription drug monitoring database reference requirements. Things like these should all be considered by regulators and legislators as they consider how to best address the opioid epidemic. All of these tools have benefit to and impact the opioid epidemic in a different way. And so really each of these tools should be considered just one tool of many in a larger toolbox for addressing the overutilization of opioids and dangerous medications in any jurisdiction. What do public entities and public risk managers need to know about drug formularies? If a drug formulary does not already exist in the respective states, should they support the development of one? Public entities and public risk managers need to know the basics of the formulary, how they work, um, some of the principles I've already talked about, how they can be deployed, and, and then what some of the advantages and, and limitations of the formularies are, that they aren't a silver bullet and that they aren't a one-stop solution, but they are one of many things that they should be considering as they implement a kind of managed care strategy and workers' compensation around the overutilization of prescription drugs. We feel that uh, public entities and risk managers should support the responsible creation and implementation of drug formularies in their jurisdictions because of the clear benefits that we see. But uh, I'll, I'll point out that I said the responsible creation and implementation. We don't think that jurisdictions should just do this just because another state did it or because they saw some benefit in another state. But, but the creation of formularies need to be deliberate and thoughtful. And what might work in one jurisdiction may not work in another. And so uh, we, we think that the responsible creation of formularies is really what we, we, we should be trying to support and help facilitate. In order to do that, that may mean that we need to support other items to make a formulary successful. Some of these other things that I've talked about as far as our guiding principles that should be considered in formularies, if you eliminate those things, then a formulary is less likely to be successful. And so supporting things like pre-authorization and the adoption of evidence-based treatment guidelines, the adoption of a state-run or state-supported appeals process for treatment disputes, things like those may need to be considered to help a formulary be successful, as, as well as just to help the framework of the formulary be successful. Are there any other tools related to drug formularies that public risk managers should know about to help them manage pharmacy claims and medication safety? Yes, there are. And I've mentioned a few of the, the tools, but what I'd like to just bring up again is that there needs to be a strategic approach in managing the overutilization of prescription drugs in these claims. And formularies are a tool. And formularies are driven by the jurisdictional kind of requirements, what the regulators and legislators want. That doesn't mean that in a jurisdiction that does not have a formulary or that might have a, an ineffective formulary, that there's still not things that public entities and risk managers can do to manage pharmacy claims. Ultimately, 
coordination between your pharmacy benefit manager, your managed care vendors, like your utilization review vendor, your field case manager, your bill review vendor, all of these parties play a role in addressing the overutilization of prescription drugs in work comp claims. And so you need to have coordination between those groups. Um, where we see the best success is when we have risk managers who are able to either use a sole vendor or, or dictate kind of to their vendors how to coordinate and better better interact so that everyone has the same communication so that should a utilization review determination denying a medication be presented, that that's communicated to the, the pharmacy benefit manager, it's communicated to the bill review engine, it's also distributed to the field case manager, the nurse who might be following the claim, so that everyone's aware of what's going on on a claim, what clinical decisions are being made, and how to best implement them. One of the other really important tools that's often overlooked is that when we're dealing with the opioid epidemic and and medications specifically that have dependent or even addictive properties and presentations in in long-term users, we have to be very careful about how we wean and discontinue those medications. We don't want individuals to be abruptly discontinued from medications that might cause clinical harm, that discontinuation might cause clinical harm. And so we want to be very thoughtful and thorough about how we wean and discontinue those medications. That goes back to one of my earlier principles about implementing the formulary gradually so as to not have that kind of abrupt one day you can get this medication, one day you can't. But it goes even a little bit beyond that. There's tools available from your managed care vendors that you should be leveraging to deal with things like tapering and how to properly wean and discontinue medications. Many prescribers are getting better at that, but that's not something that in the marketplace and in the kind of academic, the medical academic community has been something that's been a large focus until the recent years with the kind of prevalence of the opioid epidemic. And so what we find is oftentimes prescribers could use assistance in in weaning and discontinuing and that certainly risk managers and, and, and claims professionals who do not have a clinical background don't always fully understand the detail and the the complexity of weaning and discontinuing medications. And so a lot of care needs to be taken in that process, whether it be coordinating with your field case manager, coordinating with your managed care vendor to uh, create weaning programs and uh, to, to remove those medications and with your PBM to ensure that the appropriate medications are, are being prescribed and then the inappropriate ones are being blocked, it it creates a lot of coordination and a lot of challenges. And so I would like to make sure that the risk managers uh, who might hear this are are thinking about that and how they can leverage those tools that exist in the marketplace to better manage their claims from a complex clinical perspective because it definitely is a complex issue, especially when you're dealing with individuals who may have some sort of dependence or even even addiction to to a dangerous medication and, and that withdrawal is a clinical issue and that it's something that needs to be considered thoroughly and with clinical background and clinical expertise of, of your vendors or internally if you have that sort of staff that they really need to coordinate to facilitate 
the appropriate weaning and discontinuation of, of injured workers from these types of medications. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks so much, Ben and Taekwon. Please visit the Prima website to listen to other Prima podcasts, join upcoming Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about additional Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Enjoy the rest of your day.